from there, Isaiah 64, we'll read the, uh, the first nine verses. We're going to pray and we're going to move into God's word. Uh, Isaiah 64, starting in verse 1. We're, we're, of course, in the 64th chapter of Isaiah. There's a lot of material that's come before this. And Isaiah is, is, is boiling at this point, confronting the, the failure of his nation to live in a moral way before God, to live in a way that pleases God. Uh, and, and he is on the verge of proposing a solution to the problems of the world when uh, Isaiah 64 opens. And he says this in verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us. And have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand, Lord. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this word this morning, as we we come to hear what it is that you have to say to us, Father, I pray that that we would come with a spirit and an attitude of humility, knowing that throughout history at many times, people have made bold pronouncements about exactly what we need, and history has proven they had no idea what they were talking about. That, that, that the, the innovation that was just over the next hill or the thing that was certain to happen was overturned. We look to ourselves so often for the solutions to our problems. And yet over and over, the scriptures point out and teach us that we're to look to you, that you are the answer. And so, Father, as we... Consider your coming, your advent, and we look at the problems of the world and know that you will come again. We pray that you would help us to be optimistic about the future. Help us to be encouraging to those around us. Help us to love our neighbors, but to put our confidence for salvation in you alone. 
to put our confidence not in people who fail, but in God who never fails. Teach us, Lord, by your grace and for your glory, we pray. Amen. As we uh, look at this scripture, uh, the first two verses that Isaiah uh, relates, he's, he's talking about the fact that, that human beings are, are very confident of the things that they, that they think that they need. Now, that might not be readily apparent in, in, in what's written there, uh, but Isaiah seems to be pretty sure that what humanity needs is a visitation from God and a visitation that comes in power and that, that brings uh, destruction and intimidation to get people to stop disobeying. Uh, history, both personal and biblical and world history, are littered with examples of people who thought they knew what the right next thing was and yet they were they were totally wrong. If you track back in my email box, if you could, which I'm glad that you can't, um, you, would, you would see that back in 2009, I started sending emails to different people and different leaders saying, uh, we need to move this church. We need to move, we need to move, we need to move. And I looked at building after building. Uh, it's, it's been interesting to drive by the paint store on Snow Hill Road and watch them turn it into the Board of Elections uh, we walked through there and thought maybe this could be the church and, you know, talked with a realtor. And, and I, man, I set my heart on that place and thought we got to get out. But you know what? That would have been a mess. <laughs> what a mess. All that construction and stuff. Like, and there was another place that I set my heart on. I thought this would be amazing. And the, the numbers weren't good. And it was just, it was bad. And I, you know, my, my heart died a little bit when that, when that failed. But I think like, here, look, look where we are. A guy, a friend of mine, dropped something off for me earlier in the week, and he drove by, and he was like, wait a minute, you're not renting that place? Like, that's yours? And I was like, yeah. He's like, that place is fantastic. And I said, it's ours, you know? Yeah. I mean, so there's, there, that's, that's just personal expectation, but think about it in your own life, you know? Uh, that relationship that, that could have worked out, that maybe along the line you realize, like, man, I'm glad I'm not with that person right? You know, uh, that, that thing that you wanted, that job, you know, you were, you were like, man, you know, the future is Betamax tapes or VHS tapes, you know? And you thought, like, you, you thought, I'm a, I, I wish I could get all of my money out of CDs so I could invest in that, and it never, it never happened. Yeah, Blockbuster stock, right? You know, some, there's probably some kids in here who are like, what is Blockbuster? You used to be able to go and rent movies from stores and then bring them back. It's like a library for movies, right? Um, think about Joseph in the Old Testament who desperately wanted to be delivered from his imprisonment. He told the, uh, the butcher, baker, candlestick maker, uh, who was it, the, the guy, the cupbearer, yeah, yeah, not the baker. He told the cupbearer, you know, remember me. And the cupbearer was restored to his position and he forgot and Joseph rotted in prison. I bet you he thought, like, that guy, why didn't he say anything? But had God allowed him to be delivered, he would have never attained a position of prominence. He never would have been able to save all those people from hunger and starvation, would not have preserved the, the family of Jacob in Egypt. Uh, but he had to deal with, with disappointment, with what, he, with what he thought should have happened, dealing with it not happening. 
Humanity, I believe, in large part, is convinced that we know what we need, and we're convinced that we can fix things on our own. Look at what Isaiah says here. He's looking at everything that's going wrong, at the failure of his own nation, at the sins of the the nations all around him, and he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. This is what we call, uh, in in Bible terms, uh, speaking better than he knows, right? Like, he's asking for something, and you know this is what actually happens, right? That, that, That God comes down, but not the way that Isaiah wants it. Isaiah wants fire. He wants judgment. He wants the mountains to quake at God's presence. He he wants it to be like when fire kindles brushwood. Um, You know what? Have you you ever had the joy of of taking your old Christmas tree and throwing it on a fire? And it's like, boom, it just lights up. That's so entertaining. Kids, you didn't hear that from me. Parents, hide, hide the flammables. When, when fire causes water to boil, right? What he's saying here is he's longing for the dramatic appearance of God, that God would come down and display his power, that the mountains would tremble, the water would boil, that stuff would burn up. And then those that rage against God would know his name. Do you see that in verse 2? That they would tremble at his presence and they would fall in line. That the nations of the world, the, the, the tiny, diverse nations of Europe and those people in the Middle East and the people who live in Africa and the, the nations of, of tribes who live in Asia and South America and the folks who live in Central America and, and those North Americans and Canadians, that they would all be filled with fear and that they would behave when God makes themselves known to him, to them. Isaiah wants judgment. He wants pain. He wants an appearance. And you know what? This isn't like Isaiah says this and then it goes away. When when Jesus is resurrected, what does he do? He spends 40 days talking about the Great Commission and the kingdom and all of these things. And you know what happens? The disciples, this is probably just prior to him leaving, are like, okay, 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 okay. Yeah, we hear you. Kingdom now? Kingdom. Kingdom. Acts 1-6. They came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? Like Romans, right? Kicked out our enemies never to oppress us again. Like it's fire time, right? That's what they're like. Jesus says, it's not for you to know when that stuff's going to happen. Holy Spirit's going to come and receive the promise from my father. You're going to be my witnesses. It's not for you to know. Isaiah cries for God to do something, to rend the heavens and come down. And he gets a piece of the request. God visits, but not in the way that he expects. Expects. We were visited by God in the presence, the form of the Lord Jesus. He took on human flesh. He became a person and he brought exactly what we need, but not in the way that we expected. Humanity needed judgment to happen. Isaiah wanted judgment on the nations. When God sent his son and Jesus came, he took judgment upon himself. He came humbly as a baby. 
Isaiah moves on and talks about what we know of God's character in verses 3 through the first part of verse 5. He, again, speaks better than he knows, I believe, when he says, When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. And then he says, he says, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you. I don't know about you, but my experience of God has been that he consistently defies my expectations. He doesn't doesn't operate according to my plan. I think this should happen, or that should happen, or this is definitely going to happen. And other stuff happens, right? This, again, is not far from the biblical reality that we see in the accounts given to us in the Bible. God is not a God of the expected. We believe this is the plan that God should follow, and he does something completely different. When I, when I teach my class in, in Africa, I teach a piece of the Bible that they know really well, right? You know, that, that, um, that, that there's the first humans, and then there is Adam and Eve are the first humans, not, not some tribe, by the way. Um, that's, yeah, let me just clarify that. Right, there's the first humans, and then there's the fall, and then there's the flood, and then there's the tower, and then there's Abraham, and then the 12 tribes, and then they go down into Egypt, and they become a great and mighty nation, and then God delivers them out, and then they're on the land, and we've got the time of the judges, and King Saul, and King David, and King Solomon, and the nation's huge. You know what they don't know comes next? I say, uh, after teaching through all this, I say, okay, and now God destroys his nation, and they're all like, wait, what? Professor, what? God, God destroys the nation? Yeah, God builds a nation, God destroys a nation. They just don't get it. They're like, no, that doesn't make any sense. Why, why does he do that? Well, and I explained, to, take, to send the Jewish people to all nations, create the synagogue system so that when Jesus comes and Paul then goes out on the missionary journey, that they've got a foothold everywhere. I mean, that's a piece of it. Uh, but also to demonstrate the fact that you can't just say, we're the people of God and sin as much as you want and expect permanence. It doesn't work that way. God judges sin. Anyway, the, the pieces of the story don't always work out the way that we expect. The story takes turns that we don't expect. God operates in ways that we're not predicting. This even takes place in the life of the one that Jesus would call the greatest human being that ever lived. John the Baptist, right? He has a, a, a crisis moment when he's jailed, right? Herod loves to come and listen to him. John will preach at him and preach righteousness, and, 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 and uh, Herod listens, but he never changes anything about his behavior. And I believe that John is thinking like, okay, Messiah's here, like, baptize in the spirit and fire, right? Where's the fire? And so he says, sends his disciples to go and speak to Jesus. This is in Matthew chapter 11, in verse three. Are you the one who's to come? Or should we be looking for someone else? Should we look for another? Like, pretty sure I thought you were the guy, right? You know, put you underwater, you came up, Holy Spirit, this is my son. And I was pretty sure you were the guy. I told everybody to follow you. They all left. I went into jail. Like, where is the fire? And look at what, look at what Jesus does. Like, think this is, as, I, as I, I think about this, I think, wow, this just does not seem kind to a guy who's in jail. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf 
here and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them, right? Like what he's saying is everything that's prophesied that's supposed to happen is happening, right? But you're not, you're not seeing the fire. And then he says, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. He's saying to him, don't give up because I'm not living out the story that you think I should be living. Don't, don't give up because I'm not behaving the way that you're expecting I'm going to behave. Don't, don't be offended. Remain faithful and trust. Do you know what? You know what's there? Like the greatest human being ever comes to Jesus and says, I just want you to answer one question. And Jesus says, no. It's because God's not at the end of anyone's chain. He doesn't perform tricks for us. He's very important and he's very good and he's very kind and he is working it out and he doesn't have to tell us what he's doing. And that is incredibly difficult to us at times. Sometimes not so much, but in the middle of crisis, man, look at where he moves next. We know that, that of God's character in this section here, that he does what is unexpected, but also... Isaiah knows that God is a God who acts for people. No eye, it says in verse 4, has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. No one's ever seen another God. This is a God who works for people. I find these two facts to, to be in such stark contrast to one another. They're like they're difficult to relate to one another. That God's a God who does the unexpected, doesn't do what everybody's telling him, what everybody expects him to do. He does what he pleases, and yet what he does is for the benefit of the people. He does what is good for people, what is helpful for people. And we don't always accept it and receive it, do we? In John chapter 13, Jesus is, is coming around. He's, he's washing dirty, nasty, scummy feet. He comes to Peter to wash Peter's feet, and Peter gets ultra-spiritual on him and says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus says to him, what I do you don't understand, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter, Peter in, in, in Greek, it reads as this like spat out stuttering sentence. No, you never, no, never, ever will you wash my feet. It's like, this is not happening. No, not ever. No, not ever. Right? That's the way he says it. We render it in English simply because I think people would be like, what does this verse mean? It wouldn't, it wouldn't sound right. We say, you shall never wash my feet. You know? Standing up, stepping back, indignant. Jesus is sitting there kneeling. He's got the towel ready. And Peter's like, oh no. Think about this. Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share in me. I have to serve you, minister to you, do something for you that you don't understand and you won't like. But if I don't do it, you have, you have nothing. I think a piece of the gospel that is so offensive to people, I think that the, the whole you're a sinner thing is offensive, you know, that, that God doesn't 
isn't pleased with your actions, that God doesn't deal with our excuses, that he's, he's not okay with the fact that we consistently break his law and say, I'm not going to do that. And he's not okay with the fact that, that we say, I'm going to do this when you've told me not to. I, I, I think that's, a, that's offensive to someone, to bothersome to people. But you know what else is bothersome to folks? I think that there's nothing they can do about it. That God must supply the answer. That he's the one who needs to do the work to fix the situation. That he's the one who needs to act to purify, to save. And there is nothing that we can do for ourselves. Jesus says, I'm going to wash your feet and you don't get it. You're never going to wash my feet, Peter says. And he says, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have anything. God does not do what is expected but he's also always working for the good of the people. Third, we see what we can know about our situation. I think I can move kind of quick through this because I just kind of addressed this. Uh, what we see in this section right here where he begins by saying, behold, you were angry and we sinned, is that each and every one of us is in desperate need. Isaiah is calling for judgment, but not understanding I believe that if God were to come and ruthlessly judge all human beings for their sins, that we would all be consumed. We tend to, to put people on this economic scale, right? Uh, years ago, I don't know if it's been updated in, in, in contemporary history. Maybe this will speak to you. I think that, I think that we, we tend to build the scale of human behavior like this, right? Like we're somewhere in the middle, which like the acceptable point is here, right? You know, and we're here on the acceptable side of the scale. And then all the way over here is Mother Teresa, right? Like, the, who's the greatest human that could ever exist? Let's just say it's Mother Teresa. And then there's the worst human, right? And we typically go for someone like Adolf Hitler, right? You know, we put him here. And when we set things up that way, we think, like, the fire will come and purify humanity. It'll start with Hitler, and it'll blaze, and it'll, it'll stop just at my mark, right? I'm, I'm, I'm okay with... Speeding tickets, right? Like, speeding's okay. It's over here on the, on the acceptable and good side. Like, you know, uh, that, that that is okay. And we think, like, we won't get burned up. We won't. We won't be touched. But Isaiah points out here that we've all become like one who is unclean. You know? We tend to line up our cleaning standards, like, according to Keith Meyer's standards. Right? I, I, I wiped a, a warm dish rag over it, right? And we're, we're, not, we're not, our standards aren't Nancy Meyer clean standards, you know? That's like, you know, you gotta use product, right? You gotta spray something, you know? Clean mirrors, like, can I, can I like put tissue on it and, 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 and just get that little thing off there? Like, if I can get that little mark off, it's clean. No, 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 it needs to be clean. When I clean, house doesn't smell any different. When Nancy cleans, you walk in and it's like, you smell clean. Like, you smell a pine forest. Like, it feels like that, that God's standards are so much higher. The point that Isaiah is, is making here is that we've all defiled ourselves. We're so defiled that the best things that we do are polluted. 
because of our sin, our character, and our behavior withers. We become self-focused and and self-absorbed. Our sin is the source of our, our ultimate physical death. Not our personal sin, but sin in Adam has spread death through the entire race. We fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And we don't want to look to him to call upon his name we're not, we're, we're not willing to, to, to stir ourselves up, or maybe we're not able to stir ourselves up to take hold of God. And our sins have caused a separation. It says that he's hidden our face from us. We've melted in the hands of our iniquities. Years ago, somebody said to me, they said, look, at this is the way the wages of sin work. You go to your job, you put in the hours, you are owed pay. You work a certain number of hours, and if your employer does not pay you, you go to the judge and you say, I was not paid, and he bangs the gavel, and you get what you worked for. The wages of sin is death, and it's going to be in our pay envelope. God, being just, cannot spare us from it. He can't just say, oh, they don't need to receive it. Isaiah doesn't see any remedy. He sees us melting in the hand of our iniquities. And so he's going to move to begging in a moment. He's going to beg for a solution. The good news is that God has already graciously supplied that solution. It's amazing to me that Isaiah finds himself in this position, but I think like, like most historical events, like we didn't know what we were, he didn't know what he was heading toward, and so he couldn't see it before it happened. Does that make sense? Yeah. You look back in Isaiah 53, and we see the solution, right? Judgment is going to come on humanity. We're all guilty of these, these sins. Isaiah 53, verse 4, this is what... What, what Isaiah has, has put out there, what will happen to the servant, he just didn't know that this would be the solution. Listen to it with emphasis on the right pronouns. Speaking of the servant, he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. This should end with, and we all got punished, but it ends like this. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah begins by saying what we need most is for God to show up and manifest himself in judgment. We know the rest of the story. We know that he will come in humility and he will save and serve and do something else. But I believe Isaiah ends in the right place. He ends kneeling in humility. He says, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay Think about it. Clay, what, is, what does clay dream about at night? You know, it's there in, 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 in Hobby Lobby, sitting there hoping that somebody who owns a wheel will come along and buy it, right? Like, please don't let me hit my expiration date. Come save me, rescue me. You know, I want to be a, a, a vase. 
I, I want to be, I want to be, you know, a, some kid's craft. I want to be, I'm doing crazy stuff. I took this pottery class and I made like heads and, you know, like I did made all kinds of weird, I stuck, stamped on it with my shoe and cut that out and put it in the kiln and it comes out and I've got this, you know, size 11 shoe that's been baked in a kiln. You know, I don't know what I was going to do with it, but it became something like, that's what clay dreams of probably, right? doesn't want to sit on the Hobby Lobby shelf and dry out. You need someone to come along and do something. We're the clay. You are our potter. We need you to fix us and to help us. We're all the work of your hand. And then he pleads, be not so terribly angry. Remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are your people. Isaiah comes before God and says, I know that you're good. I know that you're good. Would you make a way? Would you fix this? We humble ourselves before you. He, he's stuck on this idea that there's no solution if there's a just God. Now, I think there's four solutions to the problem. Some might say there is no God, which is not true. Some might say there is a God, but he's not good. Some might say there is a God who is good, but he is not able to save. The scriptures teach us that God is, that God is good, that God is able, and that he's doing something else. We see in the book of Romans that, that, that the, the writer Paul says that righteousness has been made manifest. It's been shown to us apart from works of the law, that apart from us being perfect, God has made righteousness known. That righteousness comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Because everyone's sin and fallen short of the glory of God. No one can save themselves. But instead they can be justified as a gift. We can receive the blessing of righteousness that comes from Christ. And Paul then says that God put Jesus forward as a sacrifice through his blood to be received by faith. This demonstrates God's righteousness in the past he passed over former sins. Not because they weren't important, but because he would pour them out on Christ. And in Jesus, we see that God is just because he is punished. But God is free then to show grace and mercy to believers and to justify them. When God comes down and answers the request of Isaiah, he comes down not bringing judgment on humanity, but bringing love and reconciliation to humanity, bringing judgment upon himself. He doesn't come and bring pain. He comes and brings home. He comes and creates a family. I, for one, am tired of hearing about the cultural war on Christmas. I think that Christians ought to respond and say, we are going to talk about the peace at Christmas. You don't want to say Merry Christmas? That's cool. We can say it to you. Amen. We've got news for you. We've got something to tell you. We've got to tell you that Jesus came first to bring love and mercy. And we do believe that he is delaying his return so that all who will believe will believe. And when he comes again, he will come in judgment. Prior to that, it is time 
for the creation of family. And so we want you to know and to hear and to choose to be at peace with God. He will return. We will be together forever. This is good because he does not treat us as we deserve. He will not treat you as you deserve if you put your faith and trust in him. He loves us. He cares for us. And he writes a different story than the one that we think needs to be told. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to to share this word. I pray that we would put our faith and trust in Christ, Lord. It is so easy to think, oh, if this politician would do this, or if this authority would do that, or if this person in my life would just change this or that, if you would judge, and if you would force, and if you would do this or that, then everything would be fine. But Lord, you tell a different story. You come in humility. You embrace pain. You take punishment upon yourself. You solve the problem for us. What an amazing thing. We thank you for the gift of yourself, and we pray that we would rest in that and that we would tell others where we found the same rest. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song.